This evening we're back in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19 of all places, continuing our sermon series in this book, which we've entitled Your Kingdom Come. And if you've missed any of those messages, I would encourage you to go onto our website. You slide down or look at the top. There's a tag there for sermons, and you can find all of them there. Trust that you will be blessed by that. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 19, which is where we're going to be at this week. And then next week, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20. And we are coming to the tail end of the book of Acts. Last uh, two weeks ago, Josh opened Acts chapter 18 with the start of Paul's final missionary journey with the micro and the macro multiplication that was taking place in God's kingdom. It was going forth into new places with new people, especially in Ephesus and through a man named Apollos. And we don't know the direct impact of Apollos' ministry in Ephesus, but it is fair to say that he planted many seeds for the gospel with which Paul, as we will see in Acts chapter 19, saw an amazing work by the Spirit of God that caused saving faith and with it new life. And that is the sermon title for this evening, Saving Faith and New Life. And in short preview, that is what we're going to be looking at tonight in Acts chapter 19, is the marks of saving faith and the undeniable reality of new life that it causes compared to misplaced faith which we will see first, or that of misunderstood faith that we might see second. Instead, Acts 19 will draw our attention to that of saving faith and the resulting new life, the new values, the motives, and the actions that it stirs within individuals. And so that is our general roadmap for tonight. We're going to read Acts chapter 19 and then consider what it has to say about saving faith and new life, and then we're going to try to bend that into our lives. And so, with that, let's get to the text. Disclosure, there's several words in these 41 verses that I may butcher. And so, if you perceive me to struggle, and you know what it is, don't let me struggle. Just tell me what the word is. All right, so grab your Bibles, open it with me. We'll begin in Acts chapter 19 starting in verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll make some observations. Acts 19. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized within the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one whom was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They, there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue 
and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that have touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the ill spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sicca were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastering all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also many of those were now believers, came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So that, the word, so that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must go see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his disciples, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little dispute concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying, Their gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be found as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship." When they heard this, they were enraged and they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and, here we go, Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and, one, and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. 
Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanting to make a defense to the crowd, but when they, they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Ephesus was located on the western edge of what is modern-day Turkey, directly um, east from the city of Corinth that Paul spent significant time in earlier. Ephesus was a significant trading city and a capital of the region of Asia, not to be confused with the later continent. This city is thought to have over 200,000 people residing in it at the time that Paul shows up in Ephesus. And archaeologists have excavated an ancient theater which seated around 24,000 people. And at the center of this culture sat the worship of Artemis, the Ephesus goddess of fertility. And as later verses in chapter 19 suggest, significant commerce was built around her with over 39 local shrines sprawling across the region of Asia Minor. Yet in Ephesus sat her lavish temple. Some experts estimate that it had pillars some 60 feet high. And its building ranged from 425 feet by 225 feet, which would eclipse the size of a modern-day football field. It was four times the size of the Parthenon, which sat in Athens. And needless to say, it was the largest building in the Greek world. And enter Paul. Traveling by the main road, verse 1 tells us that he found some disciples. However, after engaging with them further, verse 2 and verse 3, Paul understands them to be followers of John the Baptist. With careful reading of the text, we can see that although these individuals were followers of John, dedicated disciples of him, they were without indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and understanding of Jesus' life death, and glorious resurrection, which was the culmination of Jesus' own ministry. This is the purpose of Paul's own question to them in verse 2. 
Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? See, Paul believes and assumes best of intent of their belief and the connection of that belief with the indwelling Holy Spirit. When Paul hears that they know not of the Holy Spirit and that they were publicly aligned through baptism with John, who pointed forward to Jesus, Paul points them to Jesus in verse 4. This is critically important as we think about the idea of saving faith. Think about that with me for a moment. What is necessary for saving faith? What is necessary for the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence? Is it baptism? You could see how these verses could be twisted to communicate that followers of John and others simply needed to have someone of greater spiritual leadership baptize them again, lay hands on them, and channel the power of the Holy Spirit to them. But a careful read of the text helps reiterate to us the constant truth that saving faith is only found in the face of Jesus as the Christ. That is what Paul pointed these 12 men to in verse 4. That's what John pointed towards, repentance and the one that would take away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ. We also know that saving faith only found in the face of Jesus is accomplished with the Spirit's movement in the life of the individual. It's Jesus' words in John chapter 3, verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We also know that the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our future awaited hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, Christ has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. See, saving faith and the indwelling Holy Spirit are so closely linked that they cannot be separated, meaning that it is not possible for individuals to have one and not the other. which resolves us to consider these 12 disciples of John as followers of John, yes, but still lost apart from saving faith in Jesus. But how should we think about the events post-baptism in verse 5? Does our saving faith need baptism and the laying on of hands to be gifted the Holy Spirit In short, I don't believe God's Word teaches either. See, we believe God's Word teaches that faith and faith alone saves an individual. There's no other act of obedience necessary, even if good, to save you and transfer you into the forever family of God. Faith and faith alone produced by the Spirit with the Spirit being the guarantee as a trusted deposit of saving faith, happens instantaneously in the life of a believer. So why does that happen differently in Acts 19, verse 6? 
Why is there a delayed indwelling, and that indwelling is marked by speaking in tongues and prophesying? In short, it's because God is using this event like He did back in Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost, like He did back with Philip and the Samaritans, and Peter with Cornelius and the Gentiles, that God is giving tangible signs of His unifying work and unifying family. Specifically in this text, I believe He's doing that for the sake of Paul. Affirmation of Paul's ministry work equal to that of Peter and other apostles. Unifying men not to focus on people, but the one true God who draws, saves, and sustains new life. It might be worth noting that as awesome as that unifying work was, and I'm sure that it was awesome, a delayed indwelling that is marked by speaking tongues, a known language unknown to the speaker, and other miraculous signs as awesome as that is, it's actually the rarity even in the book of Acts. For numerous people were baptized and did not speak in tongues thereafter. A quick flyover of the book of Acts, there are thousands of people that got saved after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where that didn't happen. The Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, that didn't happen. And even Paul in Acts chapter 9, that didn't happen. So what is saving faith? It is trust and acceptance in the name of Jesus, that he was the promised Messiah, the Christ, who came, died, and three days later rose victoriously to take on the burden of our sin before God. For whoever would believe in his name, he gives the right to be called children of God, and no other act is necessary. Not baptism, not abstaining from certain things, not circumcision, not church attendance, or anything else for that matter, only faith in Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus has sealed you with the greatest guarantee, the Holy Spirit, who produced life in your lifeless body, who now guards you, and as we'll see in these later verses, is the very means of new life. Verse 8, Paul enters the synagogue like Paul always does. He finds the places and spaces that people are seeking God. Typically, it's the synagogue where people are spiritually open, and Paul goes there, and the text tells us that for three months, he boldly reasons and persuades concerning the kingdom of God. Yet, at some point, he overstays his welcome. The relational tension builds, and Paul comes against opposition, and they become hardened, which yields unbelief, which produces speaking ill of Paul, and so he takes 
himself, the message of the gospel, and his disciples, and they go to a place, a hall of Tyrannus. We don't know much about this place. Some believe that this could have been a school or a lecture hall. Most likely, Paul would have worked during the day at his trade, and at the heat of the day, when people are, you know, not working and siesting or whatever, taking a break, he would preach the gospel. And that lasted for two years, is what the text tells us. And Acts 19 doesn't really give us a clear picture of the gospel impact that was done during this time. We have to turn our attention to other places. Acts chapter 20, which we will look at next week, and other places to see the profound gospel work that was done during this two-and-a-half to three-year stint. The final 20-some verses in, in Acts chapter 19 paint a small picture of the profound impact that God's people, carrying God's message, empowered by God's Spirit, had on both Jews and Greeks. And as the gospel was proclaimed, it was met with saving faith, a saving faith that began to shake the religious, economic, and social standards of their time. And that shaking would not have taken place if only a worldview may be concerning what happened to you after you died was all that saving faith accomplished. Because that is not all that our faith does. It does change our worldview. It does change our view of ourselves and others after we die, but oh, so much more. Because the saving faith that came to Ephesus and the saving faith for all that have repented and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ produces new life, new pursuits, new values, new hobbies, new habits, new perspectives, and new thinking. It changes what we do, the way we relate to one another. It changes our thinking, our marriages, our friendships, our parenting. It changes everything. And as we pivot towards the end of our time, I want us to consider three results that occur from new life because of saving faith. The first, a result of new life is, sadly, we will see individuals who don't have new life pretend or masquerade that they do. Verses 11 through 17 is what that could look like. In short, these seven sons of a Jewish high priest, either uh, to make a name for themselves or show their spiritual leadership or whatever the motivation, call upon the name of Jesus to pull from his power to perform an exorcism, and it ends up poorly for them, in short. As the evil spirit 
acknowledges Jesus and Paul, but doesn't see these seven sons as being a part and belonging to Jesus himself. This doesn't mean that a professing, when a professing follower of Jesus fails, they automatically should be considered as a fraud with no genuine faith. But it does mean that as individuals who have been brought into the family of God, that there are and there will be wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, leveraging all means necessary for their own wicked ends. Be watchful and do not be surprised when those that lay claim to Jesus' name for their own means fail. And the world may not make any distinction between you and them, but only see another hypocrite. What other result might we see as people who have new life? Number two, a result of new life is that the new life is in opposition to the pursuits of this world. Verse 23, The gospel is being preached and people are repenting and believing and as a result of the Spirit in their lives, they begin to change. Verse 18 through 20, we're going to look at that here in a second. There's so much change that they begin to shake the economic, religious, and social standards of Ephesus and the surrounding region in Asia. And it's important to clarify, new life in Christ, because of saving faith, is opposed to the pursuits of the world, not the people in the world. Our aim to stand apart and stand opposed is not for the sake of disunity, but for the sake of our witness, as our lives should point the onlooking world to the object of our saving faith, which is Jesus. The biblical picture of this kind of living is very clear as we've seen it in many different places. As people stand opposed to the things of this world, it creates hostility in many different shapes and in many different ways. Consider the account of Paul. Proclaims the gospel stands in opposition to people's beliefs. He lovingly presses in and proclaims truth. And what's the result of all that at times? Paul's hated, plain and simple. That is what takes place in verses 21 through 41. Another account of God's kingdom pressing forward and resistance arising. Which leads us to our last result of new life, number three. The greatest thing. A result of new life is a changed life. Verse 18 through 20 says this, Although also many of those 
whom were now believers came, and confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Let us not overlook this profound reaction that takes place in the lives of people there in Ephesus. The gospel's proclaimed. People are saved by faith and indwelled um, by the, the Holy Spirit. And as a result, there is new life, and that means a changed life. Not one that continues on with just a different destination in, in mind, but one that has been completely changed. I love the quote from The Chosen probably know this one if you've seen this show. Mary's talking with Nicodemus. Nicodemus asks her how she's been healed, and her answer is very simple. I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. If you are here this evening and you have placed your trust in Jesus' life, death, and glorious resurrection, if your allegiance is to King Jesus and you have bowed your knee to him, then you were one way and now you are completely different. Amen? So what is different about you? What was different in the lives of those there in Ephesus? We should argue everything. But two deep things are directly shared with us here in Acts chapter 19, verse 19. The first are changed values and pursuits. People who were deeply ensnared in a life opposed to God, practicing magic and witchcraft and all kinds of dark art. And as a result of new life, because of saving faith, because of the Spirit, they were convicted of that lifestyle and they confessed it publicly before the body of Christ. And then number two, don't miss this, many of them turned their livelihood upside down for the sake of walking in newness of life. They burned these books that held the secrets of their practices and with it their immediate financial security. New life resulting in a changed life. One that is growing more and more 
towards Christ-likeness as our values, as our pursuits, as our thinking, as our prioritization, and our sacrifice changes. All of which is a product of new life because of saving faith. What does that look like in your own life today? First, do you have saving faith, faith in Jesus as the only means to the Father? Second, if you have that, how are you seeing the Holy Spirit bring about a changed life in you? Because if you have faith, you have a new life. And because of a new life, you have a changed one. I'd argue that that is a healthy thing to do, is stop and reflect on God's faithfulness to grow you. In the midst of life, in the midst of the struggle, if you're like me, I know in my own heart, the desire to be changed and not just on the road of change is a challenge. Challenge to believe at times that God has and is bringing about change in your life. If you are His, He is doing it. It's a promise. My prayer is that we would be a church that is desirous of seeing the changed life in each and every one of us, not to earn the new life, but because we already possess it because of saving faith. Let us consider how to encourage one another and exhort one another along that path, believing in God's promise to bring it about and bring it to fruition. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you are the promise keeper, the ever faithful one who's given us the means of saving faith through your Son and with it a new life, a changed life, and the power to walk in newness of life because of your Spirit. God, let us Reflect upon your faithfulness in the past to stir on belief that you are not yet done. You don't start and then stop. You are in the business of bringing to completion that which you started. So God, I pray in my own life, in the lives of these people, your church, as a whole, that you would continue to mark us as people of new life because of the great gift of faith that you have given to us. May we always be reminded of what that cost you in the face of your son, Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.